the mothers among us for all their sacrifice, for all their guidance, for all the care, for all the wisdom, and all the love that you've given to us over the years. Psalm 127 verse 3 says this, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So as much as we want to thank you for all you've done today, we also want to praise and worship and honor God because it's him that made you mothers. He gave us, he gave you and gave us the miracle of life through our mothers and he sustains that life that he's given to us. Quite often in church, we talk about how people and how God uses people, uses us to be part of his plan, how he works through us to do what he wants to on earth. There may not be a better example of what we mean by that than motherhood. Moms are intimately involved in giving of birth and raising of children, but the miracle is of God. It makes me think of this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. That's what I think a mother is. You have this treasure of life within you as that child is born and grows with inside of you. But as you know, as well as I do, the miracle of birth is of God. And so today, when we think about worshiping God, we can look around the room and we can see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle that God has done among us over the years. And so on one hand, moms, we say thank you very much. We hope that you will be a challenge to us, that we will open ourselves up to God, that he can use us however he sees fit in the fulfillment of his plan and his wishes. And today as we worship, we worship God, who is the giver of life. And so we thank you for your participation with him by bringing us into the world and sustaining us and guiding us. May you be thanked and may God be honored today. Thank you. So with those thoughts, we have a few moments now to start our worship of God. The giver of life here on earth and the giver of eternal life forever and ever. May we praise him and worship him from our hearts today. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, you are wonderful and good and amazing and great. We have celebrated and talked about the power that you have shown us and the, and the faithfulness and the miracles that you have done among us, that we have uh, lots of reasons to praise you this morning for, for what you have done among us. We have praised you for our redemption, that you died in our place, Father, so that we might have eternal life. We have heard your scripture that says you offer that to those of us who believe. And Lord, we just are just overwhelmed by how good you are to us, how much you love us, and how wonderful you are. At this time, Father, we give gifts back to you uh, in worship and dedication out of a heart of love and gratitude back to you. And we pray that you will use those to advance your kingdom. We also give gifts to see to the needs of our brothers and sisters, Father, and we pray that you will guide those who, who employ those who are stewards of those gifts, Father, that you will give them wisdom and that it will be effective in people's lives and that they will know 
that God loves them, but that they're brothers and sisters. This week, I ask you to pray about joining an up group, participating in one of the up groups, to start addressing the excuses that would you would find and that would be plentiful for you not to join an up group, and to think about really obeying and trusting God's command for us to help our brothers and sisters and to receive help from our brothers and sisters. And I believe these up groups that, are, that were this idea is a, just a very intentional way of living out this scripture. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I would like to throw out one more challenge today, uh, especially to those of us who could have never stood today uh, when I asked the mothers to stand. Uh, because you're guys. So there's a passage in the scripture that says, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. And I think this kind of group, that a group of men getting together, talking about the word of God, uh, although it's not in our wheelhouse, that idea of sitting around talking with each other uh, is something we sometimes as males find a little uncomfortable, that that too can be a, a way of obeying the scriptures and helping our brothers grow. So first, two, a couple of other real hard facts, things you can do. First, I have two sign-up sheets if you're interested or we consider about this. One says, here is our group. So if you formed a group with two or three others already, you can just let us know that this is our group and this is who's in the group. And then you can answer the question whether you want the book, the little binder that we're, we're making that will have extra materials and a place to store your uh, sermon notes as you kind of meet together. If you don't have a group but want to be in one, you can sign the Help Me Find a Group uh, uh, page and answer to whether you want the book or not, uh, the little binders. I think they cost like $5 to pay for the binders, and it'll hold everything that we're putting out in those. They'll be right there. Um, just so you know, today and next week are two more kind of lead-up sermons to the kickoff of the sermon series Upwards, which ties in with the up groups. Um, and so the official kind of the official start date for the groups will be in about two weeks when we move into the, the book of 1 John. I'm more excited about this sermon series than maybe any that I've ever preached. Uh, just really um, can't wait to study and prepare each lesson as it comes because I do sense that there's a real chance for this to impact our lives uh, as we uh, pursue a relationship with Christ. And third, if you're still not sure, if you need more information, if you want to sit down and just have a chat, explain this to me a little bit more on a one-on-one -on -one level, please feel free to contact me anytime, and we can talk about upgroups. Today's passage, as I said, though, is, is a, is a build-up, um, another kind of precursor to what I hope to accomplish through the study of 1 John. Um, today's sermon is titled, Am I Okay?, and it comes from Acts 16, 25 through 34. This may be the most important thing we do today, the reading of God's word. And so let's take a few moments and read the actual scriptures. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself for we are here. We are all here. 
he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he had brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set before them and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Bless the reading of the Lord, the reading of the word of the Lord. The jailer asked in that passage really the most important question any human can ever ask. It is the, the one question every human should ask. We need to address this question, what must I do to be saved? It is the question that drives most of everything we do. It should be the question that we answer for others, the question we ask of ourselves. The second question, though, that I think is closely related to that is goes a little bit differently. It goes, am I really saved? Uh, and so, or as the sermon puts it today, am I okay? Although I believe salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, I believe also it is such an important question for us to think about our salvation continuously because it has such significant eternal uh, consequences that we should regularly kind of review our salvation, what it means to be saved, and am I really saved? Have I been born again? Am I redeemed? Have I been converted? Have something miraculous taken place in my life? Am I born of God? Have I been adopted by God? However you want to put it, for us to review that in ourselves is only right. And actually, I believe that's part of the reason we have the Lord's Supper. I believe that's why God instituted the Lord's Supper, is so that we would have this constant reminder, so that we kind of constantly preach or regularly preach the gospel to ourselves, that we review what God has done for us, and we ask those questions, have I put my faith in Jesus over and over and over, that, that we just never take it for granted or lightly or nonchalantly. I think of it kind of like pilots, you know. Pilots fly these planes, and every time, because of the great significance of what they're doing, they go through this massive checklist. Rudders, check. Aerials, check. Engine, check. I don't know. You'd have to feed me some more, Jody, some other things that they ask. <laughs> but it's a long list, isn't it? And you check it every time because people's lives hang in the balance. You never just assume, well, it was good last week. It's going to be good this week. You check it over and over. How much important will our eternal salvation be that we should check it kind of over and over? So why would we ask this question? There's, I think there's at least a couple of biblical reasons that encourage us to ask this question, to, to review our own salvation and, and see what it is. 2 Corinthians 3.5 says this, Test yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? The Bible says, test yourselves. You know, examine to see if you really are of the faith. Matthew 7, 21, 23 is a heartbreaking passage that says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not do this and that? That, that, that 
the Bible tells us that there are these people who seem outwardly to claim Jesus as Lord, but it ends. He says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And so there at least should be some concern for us to think about this passage and to constantly ask ourselves. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 13 gives two different parables. The parables of the sower and the soils and the parable of the wheat and the tares to kind of encourage people to continue to examine themselves. That There's at least the two middle soils, if you remember that passage, people who say that they received the word, but they don't ever bear fruit. And I've shared with you on numerous occasions that I believe that passage teaches that the only people that are truly saved, truly born again, are those who who endure to the end and bear fruit, that fourth soil, that three-quarters of the people mentioned in that parable, although they appear, aren't really have a relationship with God. The wheat and tares teach the same thing. Jesus teaches the same thing. He says there's wheat and there's tares, and they grow up, and you can't tell them apart until the harvest. And one bears fruit, and one doesn't. And it's a warning from Jesus that, that just because you look like one of mine, just because you look like wheat in the early stages, don't mean you're going to bear fruit in the end. And so the Bible gives us some clues that this should be an important question that we constantly review within ourselves. And so today when we talk about salvation, as we come to remind ourselves of what God did, I want to just kind of walk through what it means to be saved, some milestones leading to salvation. Because one of the ways we check ourselves, one of the ways we examine ourselves and our salvation experience is to, to remember it, to experience again, to review it in our minds, to even relive it uh, as we think about what it means to be saved. And like I said, I believe communion is given to us to help us walk through that process of reliving, remembering what God has done for us, a, a way of us checking ourselves. Um, now, let me just say I'm going to share seven quick milestones that, that I think are kind of laid out in this passage of what people kind of go through as they come to salvation. And the question I want you to ask yourself at each time is, do I remember when this happened with me? Do I, who, what was this in my life like? And uh, just as a way for us to relive our own salvation experience. Now, also I'd like to say these milestones that I'm putting out don't necessarily have to happen in the order that I have them in but just for preaching's sake you put them in a line and you kind of line them up but it could jump around a little bit but the most important thing about it is to think about when did I or what was this milestone like in my life first first milestone leading to salvation is circumstances for salvation or the circumstance for salvation for the Philippian jailer, it was that about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and they're singing these hymns and this great earthquake comes and the house is shaken and their chains fall off and the doors are open. This is the situation where the, the, the jailer finally kind of comes to his senses. Apparently he's taking a nap and he wakes up and he finds out the doors are open and that's the situation that happens here. Now, it's obvious in this situation that this is from God. This is a miraculous event. It's very obvious that God has his hands involved in this. But I'd like to tell you this. Whether you recognize it or not, God is behind whatever situation brings you to the place of salvation. In this case, it's pretty obvious God's behind it. 
But some of the things that, that really bring people, some of these circumstances that I've seen and we kind of look at to be these circumstances, and this isn't a, an exhaustive list, this is just give you some ideas of what these circumstances could be. Death. Death of a friend, death of a relative, death of an acquaintance, death of, of maybe just a stranger or someone who lives near. Sometimes death gets us, is one of those circumstances that brings us to a place where we start to question what life's all about. Some worldwide catastrophe, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, people are often confronted with the hereafter. Medical issues, either a devastating or uh, either devastating or mundane, personal or, or belonging to another personal, some kind of something happening in the medical field, some prognosis that, that is not as good as we would want it to be, often makes us, is the circumstance that will lead people to salvation. Other tragic events that happen in people's lives, unforeseen tragedies, cause people to think about the hereafter. There's also positive ones too, sometimes a new job, a new house. The birth of a child is a very common one where people start to think about, well, what is life all about? Graduation, uh, marriage, either yours or someone else's. These are other events that happen in our lives, circumstances that can be right for people to, to, to come to some idea of what salvation is. God uses all these circumstances. He's in control of these things, and he sets these circumstances up so that we kind of move to the next milestone which is the confrontation of the human condition verse 27 after that miracle the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that this prisoners had escaped it doesn't tell us all that goes on his mind but just imagine as he draws the sword and puts it to his chest or his throat or, or lays it on the ground getting ready to throw himself upon his sword He's confronted from this situation with some very stark realities, the, the confrontation of what it is to be human. Things like, he realized, I'm mortal. My life is about to come to an end, as he sat there looking at the sword. Questions about, I wonder when I pass from this life, will I be passing into another life? Is there something beyond this life that I know or this existence that I have? And then it, and when you start to ask those questions, well, well, what is the purpose of this life? Is, do I exist for more than just sitting here watching these prison doors to make sure these prisoners don't escape? Does, does my life have more? Is there something more important? Why am I here at all? All these questions and thinkings as we confront what it means to be human, as we are faced with, the, with our mortality, as we come face to face with the brevity of life, how short it is, um, as we wonder about life to come, what's beyond this life, is there something beyond this life, we get to this place where we're just at the end of ourself, where we realize we're beyond what we can comprehend and that life is short and it's very real at those moments. And so these circumstances lead us to this confrontation of what it really is to be human and questions about life and life after life and death and purpose of life all come to our minds. And I think when we face this confrontation of our human condition, there's a couple of reactions people tend to have. There's a, there's a division between people at this point. One, people deny the need. 
they, they come to the end of themselves, they've asked these questions, they've looked at these circumstances, and they deny that they have a need for saving. The, the salvation is not something, they, they would say things like, well, there's really no danger. You know, uh, you know, there's really nothing to be saved from. Heaven and hell are figments of our imagination. They're, they're corrupted up by people who want to control the masses through the opium of religion. They, they deny the existence, and, and by denying that, they have no need for salvation. They are enough. Or maybe they say, well, there just is no life after life. You know, that when we die, we're dead, and that's it. The synapses of your brains and the electricity in your body cease to exist, and that's all there was. This is the great cosmic joke that we have evolved to this high point where we can ask these questions only to be told, no, there's nothing more. Or they deny that there's, any, that there's something to be saved from because, well, although there might be a heaven and well, there's probably just a heaven, and, and nobody's really going to hell. God's good, right? They, they even deny what the Bible says, and they, they might even believe in a God, but he's a good God. And he'd never send somebody really to hell. He just kind of puts that out there so we behave ourselves. But he's not really planning on spanking anybody. You know, it's just there to kind of make us act right. Or they deny God's judgment, you know, and one of the most famous sayings is, you know, I believe that there's some kind of life after life, and I'm a good person. And whoever's in charge of that, and however that works out, they'll know I'm a good person. And I'm not really done anything really, really bad, you know, and so I should be okay. And so these are all ways of denying the need that we need Saving that there's a danger to be saved from, we can't save ourselves, and we must ask, what must I do to be saved? The other response is actually the opposite. Instead of denying the need, it's just to accept the need. That we realize there's a need. There's danger. There's nothing I can do about it. I need a Savior. And that will lead us to the next milestone, which is a cry for help. So after he's sitting there with his sword drawn to his, his, his temple, Paul calls out, says, we're here. And what does he do? He comes running in, fashions the chains on them all again, slams the door, makes sure they're locked, goes, Whoosh, that was close. No, he comes in, he falls before them. He's had this realization about life, and he says, what must I do to be saved? It's a cry for help. He's accepted the human condition. He's come face to face with the end of himself. He has no answers for the condition he's in and what's coming next, and he cries, tell me what I must do to be saved. It's interesting, I, uh, some uh, people talk about drowning victims a lot of times, and that if drowning victims realized that they were drowning sooner, many of them would be there would be much more rescues than there are because often drowning victims spend so much energy denying that they're drowning. They're trying to save themselves that by the time they finally accept the condition that they're in, they barely have any strength to cry out for help and kind of sustain themselves till the lifeguard gets there. They almost wait too long because they deny the condition. If we would just 
realize spiritually sooner <laughs> and call for that cry for help. We can rest in what Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I think there's lots of ways to cry for help. They can be dramatic cries or desperate cries or quiet cries or reserved cries. The main thing is we have to get to a place where we say, God, I need help. I'm going down and I can't swim anymore. I'm at the end of myself. I have no answers. All the things I've pursued to try to fill these answers and answer these questions, they're coming up short. And my life is getting shorter by the moment. Oh, Lord, please help me. Which brings us to the answer to the question. After the guy cries for help, it says that, that he spoke, in verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him with all who were in his house. There's a communication of the gospel. That, that the, they take time and say, good question, glad you asked. Let me answer it for you. Because guess what? I got the answer. God has given us the answer. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. There's the answer in a nutshell. But they, they shared the gospel with him. They communicate the gospel to him and his family. Back in Romans chapter 10 that I just referenced, it's interesting that when it talks about those who will call on the name of the Lord, that's the beginning of a section that ends with, now how are they going to call unless somebody goes and tells them? And so that the communication of the gospel is important, is paramount to answering the how can I be saved question, that they can't cry out rightly until they know who they're crying out to and what they're crying out for. And so they share the gospel. They told him to him in this way, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they share what the gospel is with him. And so he comes to another crossroads in his life. It's uh, the next milestone is this crisis of faith. Now, now he's asked the right question. He's got the answer. It's been given to him. And now he has to make another decision, another crossroads in his life. He's standing there. Will I believe it or will I not believe it? It's a crisis of faith. They tell him to believe in God. We quoted John 3, 16, for those who believe in God, put their, my faith in God. Well, first, let me just kind of highlight what it is we put our faith in. What do we faith? What do we believe in God? Well, first, there's a few things we person has to come to. One, and we've said these, that God created us, that God's the creator. He's the giver of life, sustainer of life. He made life as it is. And as that creator he gets to set the standards of life. He gets to determine what's right and wrong. He sets morality as it is. He sets the standard for what it is to live that quote-unquote good life. He sets our standards as our creator. Second, we have to believe that we have violated those standards, rebelliously and willingly violated the standards God himself, as only God can do, set. And this is the real crux of that belief that's so hard to believe sometimes and believe we should be banished from his presence that because of my violation of a holy righteous standard God has every right and the right thing would do would be to banish me from his presence now that's hard to say for those of us who are good people 
that this is the reality of the situation. And then we come to this conclusion. When I stand before a holy God and I violated his standards, I realize I am destitute. I, have, I am spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing for me to offer God to pay the debt I owe him. And so what should one do but turn to Jesus? And so our faith rests in Jesus to answer those first three core beliefs. And just kind of what we believe about Jesus. He lived a sinless life, making him a perfect sacrifice for us. That he died as a replacement for sinners, of which I am first and foremost. That he was resurrected, showing that he conquered sin. That there was forgiveness given in him. That he's ascended to heaven, where he intercedes and is advocating against sin to this very day. That he is returning one day to judge sin. To, to do away with it finally, to put it in its place, and that for today, he offers forgiveness for sins, that there is salvation in the name of the Lord, that he is the answer for the quandary we find ourselves in between, before God. And so there it is. It's shared with the Philippian jailer. What will he do? How one responds in their heart to these questions, to these facts, to this telling of the gospel, that makes all the difference in the world. And so we move on to the next milestone, verse, the sixth one, verse 33. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized. We see a commitment in his heart. He goes, he's decided, all right, I'm going with that. I'm going with faith in Jesus, and I'm going to let the world know by a, a outward commitment of what I believe in my heart. The heart is a phrase we use today to talk about the inner self, the core of who we are, what we really are on the inside. Our heart, that's us. That's the real us. And we, and we highlight that when I, we say things like, I love you. From the bottom of my heart, with all my heart, it, it just, we're talking about the most intimate parts of ourselves that some of us only we know about ourselves. It is the root of who we are. And all our behaviors, all our attitudes, all our actions, and all our reactions are simply fruit produced by the roots of our heart. It's kind of like this picture. If our heart is a heart of love and it's that deep part of us on the inside, as you can see, the fruit we bear shows where our roots of our life are sunk. And the Bible uses this illustration all over or in several places. Matthew 7, again, right before that Lord, Lord passage that we talked about earlier, it says, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the bushes nor figs from the thistles. It says, You will know people. Look at the fruit you'll find out where their heart is, really. And so it is a way, another way for us to kind of evaluate ourselves. But it's this point where the whole difficulty starts to rise. Because there's a real difficulty in heart issues. I can't see in your heart, and you can't see in mine. But there's an obvious difference 
between what we would by real heart belief, what I would call the difference between head belief and heart belief. Because a person with head belief can hear all these same things, and they can cry out like the person in Matthew 7, 7 says, Lord, Lord. They can, they can know it all. They can agree with the facts, but it hasn't reached their heart. It's stuck somewhere in their head as I try to define it. <clears throat> but a heart issue is what we need. This is what we call regeneration, being born again, having our heart of stone taken out and having a heart of flesh placed in our body as the scripture says it. Life, eternal life. And so this is where the real issue, this is where we start to really ask the questions. Am I really okay? Or, and so what we're evaluating is our faith. Is it, a, is it a head belief or is it a heart belief? I'd like to tell you this, uh, that I think head belief tends to lead to religion and religious practice and religious duty and religious action. And we want to do all the right things, say all the right things, and be with all the right people in a religious kind of way. But heart belief leads to regeneration, change, that something different, new birth, conversion. The truth is that they both, these two things, heart belief and head belief, can sound and often do sound very similar. They say the same things. Lord, Lord, Jesus is Lord. You know, uh, bless you, brother. Uh, God bless you. And they pray. They, they sound similar. Because it can be, we can mistake religion for regeneration. They also look very similar. They do the same things. They look out for widows. They look out for orphans. They, they, they take care of one another. They regularly assemble together. They do all the same things. They read their Bible. They, they pray. They worship. They listen to, you know, the Christian radio station. But is it a heart belief that's from regeneration because they're a different person? Or is this a head religious thing that you've got to do these things and put little fishy stickers on the back of your car so everybody will know and we look like we're supposed to look? It's horrible. To, it's almost impossible to tell the difference in these things. And this is where the issue comes. And really the only person I think that can answer whether you have a head belief or you have a heart belief, well, I think there's two of them. One of them I know is right. That's God. The other person who has the opportunity to do it is you yourself. The only two people who can ever really come close to answering that. And we try as we may. And we can look at the fruit. And we can judge the fruit. And we can, we can see what fruit's born. And it can cause us concern or cause us assurance. But the only person who can really know your heart, the only human who has a chance of knowing your heart, is you. And that's why we should ask these questions. The parable of the wheat and the tares, as I told you here, is a picture of wheat and tares before maturity, before the harvest comes. And as you can tell, they're almost indistinguishable. They look the same. If they could speak, I'm sure they would sound the same. But at the harvest, one gives good fruit, the other doesn't. But the problem with harvest time, it's too late. The harvest has come. And so we need to be asking these questions today. And so the Bible gives us, the Lord is gracious to us, and that he gives us one more milestone that is really there for us to address this heart, belief, 
head belief question. The final one, and I'm not sure you can read it, confirmation of conversion by a changed life slash living. Is that our lives, once we're truly saved, changes. Sometimes in dramatic ways, sometimes in slow ways, sometimes over the course of many, many years. That we're, as I said last week, on this upward gradient towards being like Christ. And it has its ups and downs, but it's a general upward movement. That there is change, recognizable change in our lives. And that's the purpose behind the whole upward series that I'm going to be preaching through 1 John. Because I believe by the time John writes the fir his first epistle, the first letter of John, which is late in the first century, uh, some would say around 90 AD if you want a number, that he is acquainted with church enough to know there's people in church who get it and who don't seem to quite get it. There's, he, I think he's confronted with this. There's some people that got it in their head and then there's some people who have it in their heart. He, he realizes this. And so he writes an entire letter giving out evidences of what it means to be converted. He actually says later in the end of the letter, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son so that you may know you have eternal life. It's a, it's a long litmus test of here's what a born-again person does. Here's what a born-again person does. Here's the fruit of being born again. Here's what it looks like to be born again. We'll look at over the next several months 14 different evidences that John gives to the first century believers to say, do you want to know if it's heart belief or head belief? Well, let me tell you. And he answers that question in painstaking evidence. And the surprise of the matter, it's not the things we generally think of. It's not, well, you read your Bible and you go to church, and it kind of has those things in there, but it's deeper heart issues. And so over the next several months, as we have today looked at what it means to be converted, we will be answering this question. One question at the end of this series we should be able to answer is, am I okay? Do I know I have eternal life? It is the most important question in history. If you spent the rest of your life pursuing that answer, it would be a life wisely spent. As you said, he's no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so that's what we're going to do for a mere five months. Five months of Sundays. It certainly deserves that kind of work in our and so I invite you over the next few months to constantly remember we're evaluating. Is this head belief or do I have what I need, heart belief? Take just a few moments to give ourselves just a moment to prepare ourselves for this great reminder, the gospel set before you today because God wants us I believe to constantly evaluating our faith and remember what it is we've put our faith in the broken body and the shed blood for our sins by Jesus Christ only father Lord we thank you for your sacrifice and Lord I pray that you will 
in these moments as we hold your body and take the cup that we will just have a few real moments with ourselves to rightly question ourselves have I put my faith my heart's faith in Jesus for salvation I pray that your spirit will do his work of confirmation and conviction among your people right now in Christ's name Amen this memorial as a reminder of what the Lord Jesus did for us when we were rebellious violators of God's standards and rightly, rightfully deserved banishment from his presence for all eternity this memorial represents our salvation. These simple elements, bread and wine, representing Christ's broken body and, the, and shed blood, symbolize all that Jesus did for us, what our faith rests on, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he died as a replacement for sinners, that he was resurrected, having conquered sin, that he ascended to heaven and is interceding and advocating against sin to this very day, that Jesus is returning to judge sin once and for all and that he offers us forgiveness of our sins by his broken body on the cross. Our participation in the Lord's Supper is an encouraging reminder to ourselves that we have placed our heart faith in Jesus the Christ for our salvation. Let me ask this. If you haven't made that commitment, that commitment of your heart to, G to Jesus today, then I simply ask to allow the elements to pass you by because this is a symbol of those of our faith. If you're not sure, if you struggle with that, then I too would suggest let them pass by and take a few moments to reflect on what is passing you by, the gospel. Because the fact of the matter is that it, th these elements participating in communion will not save you. They don't need to be. This time doesn't need to be just another religious duty or some religious action born out of nothing more than a head belief. But they're a representation of where our heart is. And as we do that, who knows that maybe this could be the moment. This could be the circumstance that brings you to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming flesh and giving us a living testimony to the Father's love, mercy, grace, and promise of life everlasting which you validated with your broken body and sanctified with your resurrection and ascension. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Oh, I'm sorry. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you have crucified now when they heard this they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brethren what shall we do Peter said to them repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins
Father, we just thank you for this privilege and this opportunity to come before you, dear Lord, and just to thank you for your son dying for each and every one of us. And we ask that you bless this juice as a symbol of your blood that was shed for each of us, dear Lord, and just humbles us, dear Lord. And may we have a heart knowledge uh, of that, dear Lord, that we truly accept you as your Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Praise the Lord. 